You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Are you letting the hair go right now in quarantine? You like this? Yeah. I do. I, uh, well, listen, I, I, I felt I should keep this going so Bracken would be as envious as possible. Um, I don't know, do you, are you envious, Bracken? You should see my back. I'll transplant some of it. Man. <laughs> I uh, no, I, I just I they are gonna open up uh, places to get your hair cut on uh, Friday. So I figured I would ride it out this whole time. And um, it's the thing I was not able to successfully do is do the uh, quarantine beard. You, I see you've got the quarantine beard going. Isn't this looking gross? Yeah, it looks like there's a bird's nest in there. There is. That's all the hair you have after three months. Um, my head. I mean, I know, I know that's the pot calling the kettle black, but that doesn't look like a ton of like length. It's been two months, one, and second of all, I mean, my hair was high and tight before, man. I had okay. a pretty, pretty short haircut before this. Are you a trimmer on the ears guy, like just to keep it clean there, or do you just let it yes. go? Yes, I, I hate when it's long here. This is like the worst for me. I can't stand this. Um, I like it like real tight, and I do a taper down oh, yeah. from like a three down to like a one really tight and then around the back the same thing and then i i just do clippers up top i give it a little bit of texture a little bit of life you gotta look good for that tv that you're doing i was hoping we'd see a little fro i thought we might see the jewish side of you come through and we might see a white man it doesn't fro on curl you. it doesn't curl but it, i got i got accused of having a jew fro the other day so well yeah i mean it's 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 there well you've been You've been making your reappearances all over social media lately. Have you been being tagged like crazy? Uh, I don't know. People just keep talking to me about stuff. I'm not really sure. Like, I don't know how I ended up here. I think you guys were just like out of content. It's been like, it's a dire need of content. No, not at all. We, you're on a short list. In fact, you were on my short list of people I wanted to talk to. And do you, oh. do you know why, David? Why you want to talk to me? Yeah, well, I want to talk to you before we talk to many others who we'll get to someday. Because I came before them? That's actually part of it. And also, um, when I came on the scene, you were sort of slowing down your racing and yeah. started to get into the broadcast side of things more. And I feel like there's like, I don't know your story, and you're super prevalent in the Spartan uh, world and circle, we'll say. And so I thought I wanted to get to know you. It's that simple. And right yeah. now, Spartan's been doing all their replays. Dating back to the first year of having footage on course. And so you've been appearing a lot lately. You've had, uh, they, they show your your race finish with Glenn where you fall over the line. I think that was Montana. In what, that was 2014? Tuxedo. Oh, yeah. Tuxedo? Yeah. And then, and then suddenly you're the announcer eventually too. So you're back <laughs> in the public consciousness again in like a very, very visual way. And I... I get people asking me if I'm a racer, what my background is. So I can only imagine that there are people who don't know your background as well. I'm sure there were some people that saw that tuxedo race and were like, what? Um, but yeah, I mean, that one was good. That was right when NBC actually started doing these episodes. I'm not sure. That wasn't the first one, but it was one of the first ones. And um, that was back when the sideline reporter role was Joe DeSena himself. So <laughs> you'd go running by and you'd hear Joe being like, so what's happening here is, and it was just awful. 
no disrespect to Joe, terrible sideline reporter. Um, and um, that was back when they actually featured not just the guys that finished like first and second, but they would actually show like five deep or six, seven deep in the race, which is the way we've always wanted it to be done is like show the race within the race. There's, there's more going mm -hmm. on than just who won the race. But um, yeah, the tuxedo one was good because I got accused of bullying uh, Glenn Race in that one. Who's just begging for it? That guy's a pushover. <laughs> I mean, he deserved it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's my buddy. And then actually the Virginia race that year, um, I got third in that race in the National Series race, but they only showed Hunter and Novakovic on that one. But there was, I mean, it was a good field in that. Ryan Kent was there. There was um, uh, James Appleton was in that race. Glenn was in that race. Um, it was It was not a pushover field. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly not as deep as, as it is now. It's interesting to w go back and watch them and be like, you know, the top end is still kind of like kind of the same caliber that hasn't changed, but, but then those guys from positions five through 15, it's just way, way deeper. Like you just don't know where it's going to be. Yes, it is. I can attest to that. Um, <laughs> David, I want to, I want to ask you, uh, I want to go back to like when you were like a kid, but first I want to know a uh, personal curiosity of mine is how did you get into the commentating side of things? When, when did you make that transition and, and why and how? Um, it's so it's interesting. I actually have a degree in broadcast journalism, but oh, nice. I always, but I always did the other side, which is like, I was like shooting, editing, writing scripts, doing all that. I worked at a few news stations and, um, at my first gig working in, in TV news, I worked at ABC seven in Washington, DC. And I, um, I guess they, they were really strapped for a reporter one day and they didn't have any reporters to go out to interview. It was the Wizards had just traded like the number five draft pick for like Wally Zerbiak and like a stick of bubble gum and a few other things. It was like terrible. And they were like, oh my God, this is crazy. We need to go send a reporter. They didn't have one. So they sent me. And I was like this like 20 year old kid, didn't know anything about anything. And, mm -hmm. um, and I got him to give me some really good sound bites. It was, uh, they were, I was interviewing Ernie Grunsfeld, who was the president of the Wizards at the time. And, um, Afterwards, they were just like, you know what? Let's give this kid some carte blanche to have some fun. So they sent me to, I did like Redskins training camp. Um, I did like Inside the Ropes with Tiger Woods at the AT&T National, at Serena Williams for the Washington Castles, like a bunch of really like cool stuff. Um, I did a lot of Wizards content for them. And then um, I went back to school for my senior year and I finished up a, an internship at um, CBS channel two news, WFMY in Greensboro, and they have a one man sports department. So I came in as intern and they, every time I was there, he was like, this is your show tonight. So I was editing all the footage, writing all the scripts, preparing everything. And then, uh, they just wouldn't let me go on air. So I did everything I, I would shoot, edit and write. And, um, I thought that's what I wanted to do, but the job just kind of kicks your ass. And I just decided like, I've been there by the way. You've been I know there? how that. Well, I, I was the host on the CW network here in Minneapolis for two years, and then I hosted live talk shows on ABC. Uh, so I know how the back end and the editing and all that goes. It's a grind, man. It sucks, and uh, I just was like, you know what? This is fun. Like I like it. It's really hard. You have to be very committed to it. Um, but I didn't want to do it for thirty grand a year. So um, I just was like, you know what? This is this is not it. I went to grad school, and I was like, I'm just going to move on. I'm going to take my writing skills and everything, and and move into PR because that seems like it, it works well. And 
Um, that industry was just not for me. When I got done with grad school, it was short lived. And I was like this, I hate this. I know I hate this. And, uh, and Spartan would just become a big thing in my life. And all of a sudden I was racing every weekend. And then all of a sudden the pro team happened. And, um, so that, that kind of became the obsession. And as I started opening my own fitness studio, I had to take a step back from the racing. And, um, I was really focused on just like getting the business off the ground and, and succeeding there. And, and that's when, um, I got a phone call from uh, Kemp, uh, Kemp Curley, who was the executive producer of the show that was on NBC Sports, the Spartan show. And he said it had just finished season one and they had just filmed the first race of season two. And in season two, the sideline reporter had been Christmas Abbott and Christmas Abbott as a very lovely girl, um, as was described to me by other members of the crew. They didn't know if she knew how to spell her own name. So it was really, really <laughs> tough go of things for them in the first episode where they were like, we, it just, it's not working. She doesn't know the sport. We're really struggling to get her to do scripted lines. And um, they wanted someone that had more of an expertise. And I wasn't running the national series this that year. So they said, why don't you come in and take over for her? And I said, um, okay, I'm down. They said, send us like an audition tape. And I sent them a little tape of like some, some stuff that they recorded. And um, basically uh, they said, listen, you know, like, we love this. We want to give her one more episode to see if she improves. And then they said, you know, after two episodes, they're like, it'd be kind of weird to take her out in the middle of the season. So we're going to finish the season with her. And then um, they basically just reached out to me again the next year and said, do, do you want to be sideline reporter? So took the sideline reporter gig, did that for a season. Um, and then things started to evolve. Like we started pushing the idea of like, let's do this live. Let's do it live. And then live became, you know, it was really rough. It was like, you know, really grainy and they're like shooting from drones, like 300 mm -hmm. feet away. And you can't even tell you like, is that, is that Kirk? No, that's Atkins. Like, you know, like we don't even know like what's going yeah. on. And then, um, but they could throw some packages in there and we still did the NBC show and I do some voiceover stuff for them and things with that. And then, uh, we started doing the live to tape versions, which could have been the best versions, but they had to be produced so quickly. And then, uh, yeah, I, mean, I guess this year we were going to, um, we were going to do a bit of everything. It was kind of going to be a mishmash of all those things. And um, definitely better than we had planned for Jacksonville. We re they realized in Jacksonville, like they got to do a step up. And um, Kevin and I, we were going to alternate episodes, but then they decided like, we need all the extra coverage. We need extra rabbits. We need all this stuff. So um, just like in West Virginia, I was going to rabbit and then like also like do voiceover on the footage and stuff like that and just have fun with it. But um, and, and do it for DecaFit was the plan too, which I still think will be awesome. But uh, yeah, and I, it gives me the itch to race. Every time I go out there, I'm like, I should be training more. I should get back into it. So I kind of started training again. Then I hurt myself again. Here we are. Well, we'll get to that 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 training talk later. So for my first question though, is that Deca, you think A, that still will get off the ground and B, they're going to do live coverage with legit reporting on it? Um, the plan was to do live coverage. Um, and I don't know what will be now because I have no concept of like what Spartan's budget has to be exploded. I mean, I have no confirmation of anything, but I don't know how they could have the budget for serious broadcast. That being said, I know that what they've always wanted was to be a media company and not just a, you know, an event company. And to get into media, you have to be willing to spend money on media. And um, I know that like Spartan will like have a plan and then Joe will have an idea and then everything just gets totally flipped on its head like that. And you're just, they're just like, well, we don't have a budget anymore. So just take it from this or take it from that or scrap this or do it for free. You know, that that's how they, they 
kind of always been. It's been a little bit ad hoc a lot of the time, but the plan was for DECA to have like a, a mounted camera that could pivot like 180 degrees. So you'd be getting a ton of the running and to have potentially two of those. So you'd have all of the running while also having stationary cams at the workout stations and then shoulder cams so that the guys could actually go in and, and film it uh, live. And then we'd have a live feed that I was supposed to be doing the broadcast over. And I was going to be up, up on this catwalk, like walking back and forth, like doing everything. Um, but who knows? Now? It's tough to tell with Spartan because you and I have seen the pro team side and the broadcast side, and we've seen the way, the way those budgets work. And half the time it's like, here's the budget. It's one, it's $500,000. That's our budget. And then a month before production starts, it's like, all right, budget is $80,000 go. And it's just been slashed and you have to make it work. And the other half of the time, it's like, our budget is $80,000. It happens or it doesn't. And two weeks before Joe's like, here's half a million, make it work. And you never know which side of it you're actually going to get. Is it going to be Joe opens up some funds from somewhere or the, you know, the board says it's slashed and now you still have to make the product happen. Dude, when we did the Tuxedo New York episode, back when I was still racing National Series events, they had cameras on cables that like shot down the mountain and they'd go next to you. That's how they have that great footage of Glenn and I on that finish. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. They had five red cameras. Those are like $100,000 cameras. Like they had all this crazy stuff. And, um, and now it's like, or they're like, Hey, we got like four GoPros. Like, let's let's go do this thing. And what happened was the budget got cut from like over a hundred grand an episode, like seventy five grand an episode, and then it got cut down to thirty grand an episode. And then Joe said, "I found a vendor that'll do it for twenty, and it just kept like coming down and down and down. And then they're asking me to do it for free, and that's why I disappeared from a bunch of episodes because I I just I took a I took a stand. Um, and it's funny, if you actually think about this, we all three of us have hosted this, uh, some form of the Spartan show. Mm -hmm. Brack and I have hosted together. Kirk, you were in, you were a scabbing for me. Yeah, I was. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was free labor when you weren't willing to be, is what happened. Yeah. I was giving Kirk a hard time about it too. Um, uh, but well, we, um, we all did the same thing, right? We all did our thing where we'll do an episode or two for free, and then you got to pay us after that. And while you were on strike... Kirk did his free one and said, you got to pay me. And then when he went on strike, they grabbed, you know, Kevin back and like they, they, they keep slashing that budget, but they have learned a lot along the way and their rabbits have gotten really good And for better or for worse, their budget's been pretty justified and that they can still put out an entertaining show on shoestring budget. And so the question becomes at what point do they pair that with a real budget and put on something that people outside of our sport will actually like? Well, and that's the thing is they, they have to be, it has to be demonstrated to them that, that it's going to actually generate revenue from people outside the sport. They know the people in the sport are going to watch regardless of how bad it is. And that's the, the fine line that they walk. And part of this is that I've said, if the quality was just a little bit higher, then they could actually sell ads in the product itself. So you'd be like this this replay brought to you by, you know, pull-ups underwear or this, this, uh, you know, or, or this obstacle, like now we're coming into like the tide Olympus obstacle or whatever it is. And then we wanted to have, the plan was, and what I'd been working with Watson on, but it never came to fruition. Um, and it's an idea that I've been working on, you know, that we've been working with, uh, Jody Ion and Amelia and a few other people was to have race teams and 
your team would get like drafted at the beginning of the year, either by our manager or by, or however we organized it. We were going to have team managers and everything. Each team would be sponsored and there'd be, you know, they'd bring in the, you know, Chipotle would, would pay a hundred grand to have a team for the year. And each of the five people would divide up, you know, 20 K each or whatever. And that's how they pay the athletes. And then Spartan wouldn't have to pay the pro team athletes if their team would handle their travel and things like that. It just never came to fruition. And without a viable television product or digital media video product, you, you can't really justify sponsors. They're not going to pay for it. Kirk, this is something you and I never really talked about. Uh, Dave and I were uh, on we, did, we did a little bit. Did we? Yeah, and I thought it was a fantastic idea. Yeah. It was like going back to old school cross-country scoring mm-hmm. with sponsored teams, and it makes us marketable. It makes us a actual product, and really it's the athletes that uh, get the eyes. And so it was a and brilliant makes, idea. I don't know why that never got licks. And it makes the runner that finishes like 17th place relevant Matt, in matter. the overall. It really matters. You know, and basically – it's like Tour de France, right? Which is mm-hmm. how I've always wanted to broadcast this. Is I think they have the best format because they have a product that inherently in and of itself is really boring, but they figured out how to make it fun by adding the team races, King of the Mountain, time trials, mm-hmm. all kinds of really cool stuff. And like the team race is the race that like really matters in Tour de France. Like the, the, the individual winner and then team race is like the second most important thing. And you know, best young riders, cool. And King of the Mountain is cool, but but those are the two that really matter. And you gotta have, uh, I think, five guys or seven guys. Might be seven guys in Tour de France that have to that have to finish. Um, and I think that that's been amazing. And cross country, it's the same idea, man. Like we all grew up running cross country, and every guy on your team matters. Even the guys that finish outside of scoring positions, if they can displace other runners, they're still relevant. So. I mean, a point of place is significant, and uh, it had it had an opportunity, I think, to create like a true racing league where you know fans would want to even purchase maybe merchandise that would be Spartan merchandise, but like Team Chipotle or Team Tide or Team Coca Cola or whatever. It'd be NASCAR. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people know how much work went into this and how close we actually got. We, we had identified team manager like coach managers to the point where we had a budget scripted out of how much buy-in it would take for Gander Mountain or Home Depot or Kraft to sponsor a team. And the idea was that we could get 25 to 30 men and 25 to 30 women on salary on five-person teams, five men, Mm -hmm. five women on salary. And so that you could kind of eliminate that need to, do I peak for one race or the others? But like, if I don't show up, I'm not getting any prize money so that people would have travel stipends, team houses at each event. Your your company would be paying for you a twenty dollars to $30,000 minimum salary per year to show up. And then you could race your way into shape throughout the season because you didn't have to show up and win. You could show up and take fourth for your team. Your team got a big bonus. We had a Las Vegas draft we were going to have where people got basically a live draft onto the team captain's teams. Uh, we, we had a lot of work that Dave, myself, who else was on that? Amelia and Joe D.I. Back then. And then we tried transferring that up to when Watson took over. And it just yeah. we could never quite get it off the ground. But we we had the ability, like the numbers worked out, that you could probably support 20 to 30 men and 20 to 30 women to pursue this full time. And we just couldn't get it to happen. And that television product would have been a huge part of it. 
Now, do you think now would be a good time that we have a little more time on our hands to relook into this? So with a with a new proposal, because I think for people that like maybe don't fully understand this, basically a team would have three to five people on it, and it would be old school cross country scoring. And the team with the top five best finishes wins the day. And what it does is it gives the viewer something to care about beyond Ryan Atkins winning every damn race. Yeah. Like we have so much investment. It'd be like Kirk and Mark Botris and Ian Hosick are on a team versus Bracken and Megita and, and Glenn on a team. And it would just create like a real investment. Like people love following sports teams and it would have been such a great idea. What, where did that fail? Like where was the point where that like just stopped being pursued? I mean, it, I, it, it just fizzled. It just didn't happen because what, what basically the last that I had heard of it was like, they're like, well, it's too late to install this next year. They're like, that's not happening next year. And then you start getting, you start planning it for the year after, but they change the format of the video again. And you're kind of like back to the beginning with trying to figure out sponsors and how you can sell it to them. It just, it, things just are changing in too many areas to stabilize it. But Watson, I will tell you, was really intrigued when I brought this idea up. And I still think I, I, I've been a member of the Spartan Pro team for many, many years. And I'm one of the founding members. Bracken, you were a founding member mm -hmm. of the Pro team. And um, I, even since back then, I wanted a contract because I was like, well, this is awesome. But never did I think that it made sense for the race company to sponsor its own athletes. The NASCAR doesn't sponsor any, race, any racers. And the NBA doesn't sponsor any players specifically. The teams pay them. And you know, Tour de France doesn't sponsor There's There's a sponsor for everything. And why is Spartan shelling out the money for it? I don't know. What, and they could be generating money. Like that's the most insane thing about it. Um, instead of trying to generate money off individual people's sponsorship deals, like taking 10% of whatever you get or whatever they set up for you, they should just be doing team deals where it's like, okay, uh, I always say Chipotle. I know they're always hovering around Spartan stuff, but like Chipotle, you give us $200,000 and that gives you the rights to be in this 50,000 50, goes to Spartan and the team gets 150,000. They could do that for 10 teams. You know, I don't know why it doesn't happen. They can make a lot of money off that. I think it would be the upfront commitment from sponsors. It's like, you know, when you're starting a new product and they can't even see it yet, like it's it, the, the hitch is getting somebody to hand over a hundred grand when they don't even know what the end result will be yet. I think that's probably a tough. It was part. tough at the. It's tough now, but at the time when we had started this, Reebok had just um, re-upped for I believe it was four million dollar title sponsorship, and they had taken over from oh, I forgot who did they like Innovate was one of the bigger sponsors prior to that, but then Reebok took over and Kraft came afterwards with Rakuten, and Rakuten's rumored salary was like. 20, 20 to 22 million, not salary, but their buy-in for that title sponsorship was 20 to 22 million over three years. And so if you to get your title sponsorship, you have to pay four to seven million a year to be the title sponsor of Spartan. It seemed like an easy sell to say, hey, for 200 grand, you can have one fifth of the race team of the race league or one eighth of the race league. And every time your athletes are on screen, they're wearing your stuff. They're announced as the Kraft uh, Pro Team or the Chipotle Pro Team. And every everything you have all merchandise and you have all the media side, you can promote as much as you want. It seemed actually like a, a cheap buy-in, like a consolation prize to anyone who didn't want to pay four to seven mil a year for title sponsorship. You could drop a fraction of that and have your own team that you got to just pimp out all over the place. 
And for the record, that's what like these companies that that advertise on NASCAR, or advertise on Tour de France, or they don't do it necessarily because they're like, wow, we're going to make so much money off this. Like U.S. Postal Service, like first of all, that money, that federal money, shouldn't be spent that way. But um, <laughs> that notwithstanding, like you think they're making money off that? No. The the whole point is like it's fun. Like these com for a company that big, that like a billion dollar company to play with two hundred grand is like it's funny. It's fun money. It's play money. Monopoly for that. And it comes back to the television thing. When it was on ESPN, a 30-second ad right there, to run a 30-second ad several times per year, you're looking at your two hundred to $400,000 budget right there, where if you just sponsor a team, your team's on there for minutes at a time on ESPN. And like it just justifies your cost right there. But so it, it kind of highlights how that media package is necessary um, to have a live event and a recorded event to go with it. Otherwise, these kind of things, you can't sell the sponsors. Also, like, you know, I'm no expert businessman, but I would tell these companies, my, my pitch is, yes, right now, you don't have a great proof of concept. You've seen the, the video content we produced in the past. Now we actually focus on the race and the team race. But you could offer them a deal such as, this year it's 200,000. We anticipate that number based on viewership to increase double, triple, whatever, but we'll give you a legacy deal where yours is 200,000 for each of the next five years, whenever you want to re-up if you sign up in this first year. So you could sweeten the pot by being like, you'll save money on this down the road if you do it now, cheaper, just like a founder's membership for a gym or something like that. Mm. Going back to something you said, you said, um, you know, Spartan sponsors its own athletes and no other like professional sports sponsor their own athletes. The, the athletes are all paid uh, through sponsorships and, and things like that. Are there any sports with the Spartan model that are successful where the sport itself is sponsoring athletes? Can you think of any? Because I can't off the top of my head. Uh, bull riding? Is that, is that? <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's like, it's, it's like any other extreme sport where they probably have appearance fees by the promotion, but you watch them, they're all wearing Mountain Dew or, or something on their chest and Red on their Bull. back. Right. And I know people have said, uh, Ryan Atkins has been one of the people that has said, like, you just can't compare a sport to other sports. It doesn't exist that way. It was built differently and our audience is different. And I agree with that. <clears throat> but there is a body of proof in other sports that it can work if you can just get people to watch. And Spartan was smart that they have a self-sustaining economy. They get people watching. They come out and do their races. Even if the industry declines, Spartan has this bubble that they're protected from the outside. But I think enhancing that bubble is what grows their own sport rather than just having a little bit of like lost security. Yeah, I'll tell you what. It, uh, it sure would ease up the uh, whole contract negotiations every yeah. year in the Spartan protest. That wouldn't be a thing if the model had changed for the athletes. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, David, yes, uh, we can jump more into this broadcast part and stuff in a bit. But uh, a lot of our new listeners uh, are new on the new guard, I will say, and you're more of the old guard as far as yeah. racing goes. So I think I think a lot of people listening to this only know David Megida as commentator, announcer, media guy, and they mm -hmm. don't really know what a stud racer you are and your athletic prowess, so to speak. And I want to know personally; it's a personal curiosity, but. I don't, I don't know any of your background and I don't know where athletics started for you. Um, could you take me back a little bit and let's, we'll shift gears into more David right now. Yeah. Well, you should say the stud I was, I, I would say I'm, I'm not quite a stud anymore, but uh, I've seen some of the H results. I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming up. I'm coming up. Um, 
Yeah, I, I was. Uh, By the way, I've also seen your Strava right now, and I know you're training hard as shit. I was. I see, I see those numbers coming. <laughs> I was. I, I tweaked my back a little bit. I've had this little inflammation thing that has uh, knocked me out of the last couple weeks. But I was training really, really hard. I've, I've got. I will get into it later. But I got reinvigorated by by training with Mark Gaudet. He's. Mm. He he basically pounds me into sand on every run, but it's but it's been good for me. Um, I uh, was a fat kid, like oh. real fat. First grade, I was like the biggest kid in the grade, super super chunky. Started playing soccer next, like that turned into a skinny mini. Wait, why were you? A, I want to interrupt you. Right? Why were you a, a fat kid? Was it like just upbringing? Was it just the way you were? Was it like I came out fat, man? I came out like <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like a. Uh, nine pounds, one and a half ounces when I was born. And then I just kept eating. So I was, I just hadn't uh, done any real like activity. And then when I was like five or six, my mom, I, all the pictures, I'm like this big balloon. And then my mom put me into soccer and um, everything changed. And soccer was like my love for childhood. And I then got into swimming too. And um, so my whole childhood, I, I swam, played soccer. And then, um, I, ran, I entered a race in fourth grade. Remember my soccer coach, he was like telling people like, oh, you should do this race, you're fast. You should do this race, you're fast. And he didn't tell me, he like did not mention me and I got real mad and uh, went out and it was uh, fourth graders through eighth graders and I obliterated everybody. And uh, I just was like, and and uh, my sister always joked, if you put a cash prize at the finish line, I'll, I'll beat anybody. So uh, I uh, just got into it from there. My, my dad, um, took me to the track a few days later to see if I could replicate it. It was a mile. He wanted to see if I could replicate it. And I, I, I missed it. I, it was a six thirty. I ran a six thirty in fourth grade. Wow. That's smoking. Yeah. Isn't it? I was, I think I was pretty quick for a fourth grader and I'd never trained yeah. before. So my dad took me to the track and I tried to replicate it. And I went like six forty five, and I got really mad and I stormed around the track for five minutes. And then I said, let's do it again. And I ran it again. And I went like, you know, six forty. And then I got real mad and I was like, do it again. And I ran it again. And I ran like 645 again. Your first interval session. (laughs) I had no idea. And my dad was like, oh, we need to get you running cross country. So um, the next year I went back, I did the same race, but I ran the 5K and I still had not run, ever trained. I just played soccer still. And I remember thinking at the time, I was so fast. I ran like 2250. Or something, but I was in fifth grade and I'd never trained, and uh, and I um, they didn't know what to do. Like when I finished, I like beat the women's winner, and they were like, uh, "We'll give them. We'll just anybody have a trophy sitting around? Like we'll give them first kid or something." And um, from there, I was just hooked. I wanted to run cross country, and uh, my dad was like, "You know, when you get to school next year, when you get to middle school, they'll have a team, all that." I got all jazzed up, got to school. I was the only person on the middle school cross country team, only one. So coaches would have to drive wherever the meets were with just me just like we wouldn't even get a van like a team van we just have the car uh, instantly popular yeah, i was incredibly popular in high school i had exactly zero friends um but but i had running so What's i with, um, what, what kind of middle school do you go to like even the smallest middle school has like five kids show up right what the I, heck kind of school are you going to i went to a private school with at the time in sixth grade we had like 42 kids in my grade or something and we had a and we fielded a soccer team and i played on the soccer team too and the 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 running was i was just going to play soccer initially was the thought because there were no other kids on the middle school team 
Um, but the school had a fundraiser 10K and they sent the varsity cross country team and I won that. And they were like, well, okay, let's, we, let's get this kid into running. So the, they gave me a waiver to do two sports. And then, um, and then I was training. So I was doing the middle school soccer practices. And then I was training with the varsity cross country team after school and since sixth grade. So I was running a lot. And I would run the meets with them, but I had to be pulled out at the finish line so they couldn't score. Because if I got scored, I would lose um, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm spacing on it. Basically, eligibility. So um, so I ran, I won a JV championship in seventh grade, a JV championship in eighth grade. And then they finally let me run varsity in ninth grade. And I went all conference four years in a row and won a conference title. And How quick were you running at that time? Uh, my fastest high school 5K, I went 1544. Oh, that's smoking. I was pretty quick for a high school kid. I just. What was your size like then? Ooh, um, by my senior year, my freshman year of high school, uh, for perspective, I was also on the wrestling team. I was captain of the wrestling team. And I was 97 pounds cross country season my freshman year. I wrestled 103 weight class. By my end of my senior year, and I was the shortest kid in my grade. I was the shortest kid in the grade until junior year. And then by senior year, I was five foot 10, 142 pounds. So pretty long and lean, like basically mm-hmm. VJ Jones. Um, and then not as fast. And then, um, yeah, and then I got to college. Um, this is where it gets interesting for me. This is like weird. You won't guess this turn of events here, Kirk. <laughs> I'm, I'm, at, I'm on pins and needles. Okay, so I, I started running in college, and my goal was just to be like the best runner ever. I was just obsessed. And I had a few injuries. Where did you go to college? Um, Buck, Bucknell University, my freshman year. And you, year. Got, you got recruited to, to run, obviously. Yeah, it's funny. Okay. I had I, wanted to go to Lafayette University, and um, I was like in love with this school. When I toured it, I was like, this place is amazing. And it's really close to the, the race. I think it's really close to the race where we do the Blue Mountain race. And um, I fell in love with this school. And then I met with the coach. And when I went into his office, he sat down with me and my parents. And he goes, he didn't even like address anything. He was just like, listen, just so you know, you're not fast enough to run here. Like, you're never going to run here. I won't even let you walk onto this team. And then he just was like, okay, goodbye. And he made me leave. And then I got, and I was devastated. I was like, totally shook. And then he called like two hours later, we were driving home and he goes, I mixed you up with another athlete. I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> Will you come back? And I was like, no, screw you. So I um, never spoke to that guy again and ended up, wow. going to Buck, ended up going to Bucknell where the coach was kind of a monster to me. He tried to get us to run like a hundred miles a week. The team had this really sick culture. You were not allowed to wear tights. Everybody ran shirtless, even in like the dead of winter. So a bunch of really dumb bravado BS things. Um, and I had an IT band problem that kind of lingered all season. And it got to the point, I remember, like the coach just got so fed up with me not performing and not, I only ran a couple races. And he was just like, you are a huge pussy. That's what he said to me. And he basically- Did he use that language? Yes. Yes. Wow. I know. I know. I remember it so like vividly because I was like, why would you speak to like one of your athletes like this? And, um, but I was just hurt every time I started training again, it would just, I just re-injured it. And, um, I ended up just quitting the team and I was like, screw this. I don't want to do this anymore. I started lifting weights a ton. And then I was like, you know what, you know what I always wanted to do, but I never got to do, I want to play football. So I just started eating big 
And I went to the football coach and I said, listen, man, I've never played football, but I was a high school wrestler. I, I could take a hit. I'll be fine. Put me out there. So uh, they just, they threw me first into winter training and they basically <laughs> just had us lifting, you know, powerlifting five days a week. I went from running, you know, 80, 90, even a hundred miles a week to, to running nothing and just powerlifting five or six days a week and lift at 6 a.m., eat breakfast to the point I wanted to puke, sit, digest for 30 minutes, eat again till I want to puke, and then go home, chug a protein shake. And I did that three meals a day. And Your I, physique is starting to make more sense to me now. Mm, I was wondering how we got there. Dude, I went from my senior year of high school, 142 pounds, to by the end of freshman year, end of spring ball, because I played spring ball, um, 208 pounds is what I got to. So in one year, I went up like 60 some odd pounds. And people say it's impossible, but I could tell you it happened. You know, you had those fat kid tendencies, so you were ready to grow. Your body really, wanted to be big. You were just holding back for years. Well, and you know, my natural weight is like 100. If I don't, if I don't run a ton, and if I, if I just kind of eat a casual amount, I'm like 190 pounds. It's like my, like, my body's like natural weight. And then I can I can slim down to like 175 is probably like my ideal racing weight, but I probably don't want to get any lighter than that. And if I lift weights like aggressively and don't run, I go over 200 pounds like that. Like it just happens. So is uh is Bucknell what division is that school? They are Division One for all sports except football, which is one double A. One double A. Yeah, they play in the Patriot League. So um, the cross country and track was actually really competitive there. They they're a decent team, but um, Army and Navy are both in that conference, and they were both top 10 in the nation at the time in cross country and track. Um, and American University was actually the, the fastest school at that time. They were top 10. They had, at the time that I was there, they had five sub four milers on their team. They were the real deal. They were a legitimate, wow. legitimate team. So you so you walked onto a Division One AA football program without playing one snap of football in your entire life. Correct. I, I can't imagine there's more than a handful of people in America that have done that. Probably not many. And um, I mean, to be fair, I was mm -hmm. one of the worst players on the team. But I can unequivocally tell you, I was not the worst player on the team. I know that for a fact. Did you get any play? I mean, spring ball play, but it's not official, you know. You played wide out, right? I played wide receiver. We ran the triple option, spread option. So I did a lot of hitting. So it was a lot of um, stock blocks on the corners, backside cutoffs if we were running to the other side. Um, you know, you just basically throw your shoulder at a corner's knees. Um, and then crack blocks and crush blocks. So if you don't know a crack block, that's when um, during a run play, you the, the safety is watching the ball carrier and you come and blindside them. Uh, as a wide receiver, you just run through them. And which is now illegal. What is now illegal. And a crush block, which is even more precarious because it's a linebacker, and these guys are much, much, much bigger. So you'd throw yourself at a guy who's 240 pounds and hope he doesn't kill you. And then um, they also had me doing kick return, um, which is, if you've never done kick return, it's the most terrifying thing you'll ever do in your life because – you get the ball on both sides um, as a as a return man because you catch the ball and there are eleven guys trying to massacre you and the combined speed of you running you know twenty miles an hour one way or eighteen miles an hour one way whatever it is and them coming the other way the hits are just it's I don't know how it's allowed in sports 
Um, it's insane. And then um, they also had me as a gunner on uh, on kick return, um, on kick coverage, excuse me. So they, they'd kick off a ball and my job is to run down the sideline blazing fast and try not to get popped on the way there so I can, you know, grab a shoelace or an ankle with a ball carrier. And I would just get absolutely obliterated on these plays. Like, and and if we ever did uh, offensively, if we ever did throw an interception, I have I have in practice, I have so many memories of like, oh God, now I'm on defense and the linebackers turn into blockers and just absolutely annihilate you. So I got I got annihilated more times than most, but um, I also we did a lot of one-on-one drills where you start, you just basically have one person in front of you and just slam into them. And I got to the point that I was, I became big enough and strong enough that I actually held my own. Okay. Towards the end of the season. And um, yeah, I was never a good football player, but I was uh serviceable. I became serviceable. Hmm. I didn't see that coming. So uh, what happened after? So you did that the remainder of your college, correct? No, I did that for just that year. And then um, I ended up leaving school and, and just, it's a it's a long complicated story, but essentially one of my teammates that I was closer to passed away like very suddenly, and I just didn't want to. Uh, I just wasn't happy there after that. I needed to get away, so I took some time off school. Ended up going back, finishing at Elon University. They didn't have uh, a, well, I wasn't going to be playing football for them, and they didn't have a men's track team. They had cross country, but no track. It actually probably would have been a good idea, but I hadn't run for a while. I ended up not running for years, and. Um, I ran a couple like, you know, races you'd pop into here and there, but mostly just lifted weights, played basketball, played flag football with my friends, just became a frat guy, drank a lot of beer, you know, that kind of thing. Just like chased girls, drank beer. That was college for the rest of the time. And then um, after college, grad school, um, I started running because I ran a Spartan race. I saw a Facebook ad and they were like, hey, we, we got this cool race. Are you strong? Are you fast? Do you want to try this? And I, I came out and Got crushed in my first Spartan race, but loved it and kind of got hooked. So didn't think it was going to be like a, a repeat thing, but they came back the next year and some of my friends wanted to do it, did it again, and then, and did well both years, but it like killed me. And then um, what really got me into the sport was I had been running, I'd started running marathons and just casually getting into it, not like competitively well. And um a friend of mine said, have you heard about this superhero scramble thing? And I was like, I, what is that? That sounds stupid. And uh, she said, no, it's this race. They're coming and the winner gets $2,000. And I was like, $2,000? Count me in. So I uh, I registered for this race in Miami. I'm living in Miami at the time. And um, <clears throat> then I find out there's this guy flying in for this race. His name's Hobie Call. Maybe you heard of him. And mm. uh, yeah, you know, this guy, Hobie. Yeah. Um, Chicken nugget with legs, they say. (laughs) That's me. Uh, We we have a good little race in the beginning, and then he just drops me. And after the race, I finish second. I still get paid pretty well. I made like $750 for second place there. It's a pretty pretty good payout back in the day for for an obstacle race. And he turns to me and he said, he said, what are you you training for? And I said, you know, I'm probably going to do an Ironman. I've done some marathons. I want to do an Ironman. And he said, Ironman's too boring, man. Just, just you should become an obstacle racer. You're, you're good at it. So he like convinced me. And there it was, and uh, I started running a few more Spartan races. Did the Ultra Beast that year, and then the next year started hitting podiums. And Bracken and I went one two in the North Carolina race down at that freezing cold 
Yeah, the U.S. Whitewater Center. The Whitewater Center. Disgusting rain and mud and snow that weekend. Crazy weekend. It was one of the coldest races I've ever raced in my life. It was horrible. I mean, I ran two miles of that race with my hands tucked in my armpits like because my fingers were so numb. And um, it was terrible. Kirk, it was so cold. The last obstacle of the day was the uh, straight traverse wall. And mm. I think one guy in the top 20 made it through. It was a combination of so cold wow. and so muddy. And the thing was just, you should have seen it the next day when we raced. It was so muddy that, yeah, it was the same thing. Nobody made it through. It poured all day and sleeted and it was like 33 degrees and your hands were so numb. No one could could move your hands. And so everyone did, did burpees at the finish everyone line. Everyone did burpees there. It's amazing. Why is it like 50% of Spartan races are always in just shit, miserable <laughs> conditions? It's like every time it's race day, it happens to be 30 degrees and fucking raining. It's like, what's the draw there? It, it's, it's always. And it's partially because like they plan them. They're like, we're going to do these races in the South, like in February. And it's going to be great weather. And you're like, wow, you know, it, it snowed that whole weekend because you chose to go to North Carolina in February. <laughs> and, you know, like, you know, Bracken, you've raced that, that race in Conyers, Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it's the same thing. It's like March 8th in Georgia. And you're like going in and out of the water. And they're like, well, I'm so surprised. Everybody thought it was so cold. It's it's seven in the morning. Of course it's cold. <laughs> Bracken, who, who took first and who took second in that race? You can guess. I don't. I want you to tell me. I want you to tell me. David took second. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I was I was real fit. Not only was Bracken real fit, Bracken, Bracken, old school Bracken is definitely faster than the most recent years of Bracken. Like I, I don't think people realize how good he was, but old school Bracken was like going toe to toe with these big dogs that like are still legendary. The Cody Motes, the Hobie Calls, the Yatskos. Bracken is, was right there. It wasn't like another level down to him. Like Bracken was in that tier in everybody's mind. The rewind served you well, Bracken. I think that helped remind people uh, where you're going to be next season. It is, but is there anything worse than a ah, back in my day kind of at, I don't know. I do it all the time, man. What are you talking about? Got to live in the glory days a little bit. But Dave, you and I had a had probably two years of traveling to races and racing each other, either with or against each other. We had races in Illinois. We had races in Carolina. We had races in Florida, uh, all over the place where it was always like halfway through the race, you and I would be joined at the hip knowing like yeah. it's going to get miserable because Dave and I were the same racer. We were both. By same racer, do you mean guy who like completely over exceeded his physical abilities? Yeah, we were gamers and we were both not the person who wanted to like drop everyone from the gun. We were going to wait, pick our moment and try to close really hard. And so every time we wind up next to each other, like, oh, man, like again, who's going to do this and, again. And let me tell you, there's nobody that you are less excited to be side by side with with like two miles left in a race than Bracken because he's a friggin gamer. He really is. So Bracken broke my heart in a lot of races because he just like it'd be like I'd be like this is the day this is the day I take this guy down and then Bracken would just slip away from me with like half a mile left in the race like he just is he's a very good strategic racer. Was Bracken somebody who you thought about in training? Was there a yeah. dartboard with Bracken's face on it in your room? Uh, yeah, uh, metaphorically, yes. Bracken was definitely sure. one of the guys that I was like. To me, Bracken was the next tier up. Like if I could get past him i was in the upper echelon like he 
So there, I don't want to sound rude to anybody, so I'm not going to put it this way. I'm going to use it a way that Bracken once used somebody else. He used uh, someone else's name once to say, this person is the delineating line between whether you are really good or just good. And Bracken- I know was, who you're talking about. Bracken was that line back then. Mm-hmm. Bracken was the line between the Cody mode, Hobie call, and the next level down. So uh, I, to me, Bracken was the guy that I was, was chasing. And then it became like the the uh, Hobie, Cody, and Hunter with Bracken line. And then sometimes Bracken would pop like a huge race. That's the thing. He could pop a huge race and just drop people. And like that Illinois race, that Marseille, Illinois race, which was – nobody remembers this, but that was actually – back then we had Sprint National Championship, Super National Championship, Beast National Championship. Washougal was the Sprint National Championship. Marseille – Illinois was the super national championship and Bracken won that. He obliterated Hunter by like four minutes or something in that race. It was incredible. And I finished third in that race. And that half that race was running in a mud pit. It was insane. Of course, you know, just the, mm-hmm. the nasty slogging races, but, but um, not that I want to stop talking about how awesome Bracken is as a racer, but this is my episode. So we'll just, <laughs> we'll okay. it's, it's interesting hearing that like, you thought about me in training a bit because I thought about you and me and my brother talked about you a lot in training. You were the guy that we always thought if he put together a year uninterrupted, he was the guy who was the delineating line between the <laughs> the Hall of Famers, you know, Hobie, Cody, Yatsko, Hunter, and Atkins at the time, and the next level of racers because you had the ability to get in shape really quickly and you could just run workouts better than most guys in the sport. You just didn't keep healthy or like locked in with motivation for more than a few months at a time. And so you'd come up and you'd nip at people's heels for mm-hmm. a race or two, and then you'd disappear for six months. And we just knew like Megita has the strength and running ability that none of us have. And we no one has just ever seen him at his his best form. We always saw like your B plus version. I do. Thank you. I actually do believe that like, I, I never peak for like a whole season. I never get like a whole season. I'm always getting hurt. Something always happens, which is, I think one of the issues when you are like 190 pounds trying to run like 70 miles a week, like it just doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not kind to you. Um, but um, some people have the ability to stay healthy and it's amazing. I, I com- I commend them and I'm jealous. And then yes, motivation does. Uh, it does wane sometimes. So you know, a couple months ago, a month ago, my motivation was extremely high. Now I've been banged up for three weeks. So who knows where it'll be when it comes back. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's true. Like that after me, there was a, there was another 10 guys and I basically, none of them would ever beat me, but I was losing to the same guys over and over and over and over. And so I have a ton of, I have a lot of podiums, but I have a ton of fourth and fifth place finishes too, where it was like, the guys in front of you are, it's Hobie, Cody, Hunter, Bracken, Hobie, Cody, Hunter, Bracken, and whatever order that was, those are like the, really the only four guys in the sport back then that, that made me nervous. Everyone else to me, I felt like I owned them. I, they were beatable. And then occasional guys would show up that were also really talented, like uh, Chad Trammell would, would show up, guys like that. And that he was like, he and I were kind of on the same level back then. He was a stronger runner, but I was stronger at all the obstacles. Dave, you had, we've talked several times on the show about who we think is the most impressive, like heavy runner, like Hunter might be the best 
200 yeah. pound runner that we've racer we've ever seen. And Ryan Kent at 190 pounds is as impressive as it gets. But yes. you might be the best. This is this is going to sound like a left-handed compliment. The best workout runner I've ever seen at your weight. <laughs> like at 190 pounds, he'd he'd show me workouts afterwards. He'd go like five or six by a mile with 90 second rest at 450, 455. Wow. Or out of shape when we were down on the Spartan show, the first season of Ultimate Team Challenge. Oh, he wasn't fit at all. He goes out for like a nine mile run one morning at like 610 pace. Like sometimes just does these just... things that no one at your weight should be able to do. Six by a mile at sub five at 190 pounds with not long recovery, that's not normal. And those things always struck me like all you need is a year consistent and you are whoever you want to be in this sport. Yeah, I mean, and let's not put, let's not act like those workouts didn't massacre me because they did. I I was running on a when I was doing some of those, and I would show you those workouts. I was running with a track club up here in DC, uh, Georgetown Running Club, and every dude on that team is was a D one runner, and they'd have like four or five All Americans, a few guys who'd run Olympic trials, and I ran in the C group in this in this group, and it'd be ten guys in the A group, ten in the B, ten in the C group, and the C group we would start at um, we'd run a mile and it would be, okay, every lap on this mile, 75 seconds, you get your recovery, you start the next one and they're really short recoveries. They were quarter mile fast jogs. So at the slowest, it would be a two minute recovery. They were so quick getting into the next one. And we do six of them and each mile, the lap would be a second to two seconds faster per pace. So by the end of this workout, you're running like 448 or 446 or whatever. And it's like I and and I would crack and explode in all these workouts, and I have distinct memories of of like going home and being in the shower, like on the floor, like shaking because like it just trashed my body that much. But I, I am kind of like a workout warrior. Like I can go through hell there, and I'm a gamer in the races. In that, like there, I'm I've, I'm running with dudes I have no business running with. Like these guys on a flat course would be out of this world, way far ahead. But I think the same can be said about Hunter. Like. On, he's another level of athlete, I think. But if you put Hunter into a road 10K, he gets obliterated. He's not that fast on the roads. And no disrespect to him. He's a legend. He's awesome. But if you put him into a little bit of mud, some rocky terrain, a little bit of hills, it the stuff that slows down these speedier guys, it doesn't slow him down as much. He can climb. He can run uneven surfaces. If it becomes a little bit more about toughness and engine, then he's right there. Mm, he's more durable. Durability mm. is uh, is an important quality in in this sport. You know, though, when you think about it, I don't know about you, Bracken, but I your high school five k time uh, is probably one of the best in the sport. So clearly, you. like your background is is solid. So some of those workouts don't really surprise me. I didn't run that fast in high school. Did you, Bracken, over a cross country course, fifteen forty? I ran sixteen fifty two for five k in high school. That's the best you did. See, there you go. I ran I ran 426 in the mile my senior year, and my endurance is so bad naturally that my 5K, I broke 17 three times in high school. Wow. Like I just, extension is such an issue for me. But you, yeah, you have one of the fastest high school 5Ks in the sport. So I'd, I don't think that, A, you're going to be over your head when you come back. And B, I'm interested to hear what your comeback plans are. Are you thinking high rocks? Like, is that your sweet spot? Or are you coming back for the for the races that you've been watching on TV, the national series. National series. That's a great question. <laughs> because your skill set says powerhouse and you can run thousands like no one else in between. 
but yes, I, I'm really good at running thousands. I, I would love to do that. Um, High rocks is interesting to me, partially because I don't have to, um, I don't have to give up a broadcast to go run a race. Like if I'm going to get paid to do a broadcast, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for me to skip that to run the race and, and lose and not make any money. Um, but I could just run a different race. Um, honestly, I, I got back into running a lot this year because one, um, the gym shut down, my studio shut down right now. Um, but two is, uh, I got recommended to run on a charity team for the New York marathon. And I always said like, I'm never doing another marathon. I hate these things. They're the worst training forms, the worst, like they just suck. But, um, it's the New York marathon. You don't usually get an opportunity to just like drop into that. So I started running and running and running and doing a lot of two a days. Like my strategy is, um, you know, my, my strategy for not getting hurt, which worked out so well, um, is I, instead of running like a lot of like 15 mile runs, like really longer, long runs, I do like, you know, like eight in the morning and six at night. And usually where I start to get like muscular injuries, like calf pulls and things like that, it's like, 11 or 12 miles into a run and then I finish it out and then my calf is like destroyed for like two weeks. So I tend to do a lot of like two a days where I'll run like a better run in the morning and then I'll just add some miles on in the evening. Um, and then I started adding some stuff like I, I can do, I get, I think the, the longest good run that I, I did recently was like 16 miles. Um, and, and I'm just trying to, you know, I'll run the first eight miles at like a pretty good tempo and then try and drop into about marathon pace for the next eight, something like that. But I'm not really like fit for high rocks right now, believe it or not, because I haven't been doing much weightlifting and stuff like that. Like I got to figure out where my balance is. And my goal is to run a pretty decent um, marathon and running like consistent miles for 26 miles, I think is a weakness of mine. It's not really like something I'm I'm great at, I'm, I'm better at running like higher intensity for a shorter period of time. Like I love stadium races, you know, kind of like Bracken, I'm always kind of hovering around that podium position in any, in any crowd in a stadium race. And, um, I like sprints. I like shorter events, but this is going to, I think, stretch it out to like where I want to run some supers as well. And, um, part of this is just that, um, Mark Gaudet, who, who, uh, we met in the DC sprint over the summer, he's, he's going to be an absolute monster this year. Um, I think you've, you guys have seen him race, but mm -hmm. he's, he's putting it together and he's getting, he's already, I can attest to the fact that he's faster than he was last year. He and I, he's basically become my training partner. And so we are, he comes to my studio and does my endurance class every week when the studio is open. And then we do running workouts together. We do a lot of miles together and we'll go after some, uh, course records on different Strava segments that we find. We'll find, you know, um, we had a pretty rugged, like 3.7 or 3.8 mile trail one recently that, that crushed my soul that he, that he, he got dropped by about 30 seconds. I yeah. That. 25 or so. Yeah. 25, my bad. Yeah. Oh dude, trust me. It was, it was bad. It was rough. Um, he's, he's fast. He's really quick. Um, supposedly he was doing a treadmill 5k every week and supposedly he just sets it at 12 miles an hour and just, runs until the thing it's as fast as it goes but he has no problem he'll he could probably go he could probably do like low 15s maybe even under 15 right now so trying to keep up with him is 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 been a challenge for me but i think really good for my training um i kind of just want to be ready for anything I, mean, I don't think i want to focus on anything specific because i have the new york marathon and he's convinced me to run the jfk 50 miler which is three weeks later 
and <laughs> and he's and he's you know he's a very encouraging person. He's trying to get me to go top ten there. So that's uh, just he, enough time. That's just enough time that you might be able to recover and perform. Are Are you going to crack the whip in the marathon, or are you going to survive it and go after the JFK? Um, I am trying to run sub two forty in the marathon, which for me would be cracking the whip. I think uh, based on the workouts that I'm putting in right now. What do you weigh right now? I'm about 188 pounds. That's that's cruising for 188. I'm yeah. I'm hefty. I'm hefty, man. But um, I just gotta eat less. I love food. You know what? You should just go above 200 and then set the world record for the 200 pound marathon. What's that's the what record? You, do. you know what the record is? I bet you it's in the. I bet you it hovers around 240. What do you think, Bracken? I know it exists. Always oh, looking at Dave's that. Dave's typing right I'm now. Right <laughs> I'm curious, and not that you really should do that, but it would be. Under, you'd be a guy that could do it. Weight class world record. Um, if it's like two twenty something, I'm gonna lose my shit. It's got to be two thirty eight or above. It's gonna no. I don't think so. I think it's gonna be really f- no way under two two thirty eight. No way for two hundred pounds. We'll find um, it later. But yeah. David, it, David, I want I want to know. Um, did I interrupt your line of questioning, Brack? In there? Nah, you roll with it. Okay, I just wanted I want to go back to like why you. Like you were pursuing Spartan at a high level, and then you kind of chose to do the broadcast thing. Uh, why did why why did you why did you stop? You said you hadn't quite tasted what you wanted to taste yet, as far as success in the national series. So yeah. why leave it? I opened my studio, Elevate Interval Fitness, uh, in DC, and yep. it just demanded an incredible amount of my time. And when we opened, it was just myself and one other coach, and that was it. And I hadn't really established operating procedures and clean team and everything. And so I was like cleaning the studio myself and I was writing all the workouts and leading half of them and trying to hire staff and dealing with all the sales and the marketing. And I was just like, I was over my head. It was just, it was a lot. And now things operate much smoother. Um, so I have the, the flexibility. I have, you know, I have like 35 employees. So now I have like a, a ton of flexibility. Um, but at the time I was just swamped and I, I knew I was going to have to take the first season off. Um, and then I was so out of shape. I just kind of didn't really want to go and race the next season. Not, I was getting great workouts in the studio, but I was not logging miles. And I actually, um, in the first month, first three months we were open here, I put on a bunch of weight because I wasn't working out. I wasn't doing anything. So I was so busy just trying to just get the studio going. And, um, and building our membership base. And I couldn't even leave on the weekends anyways. It was like too much work. Um, so I worked, you know, I was working hundred hour weeks for the first year and a half we were open. It was nuts. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in a better place now. We have two locations and, and I have a lot of staff and a lot of flexibility comparatively, but I still work a lot of hours. Um, I just, you know, for me to feel comfortable going out and running one of those races, I want to feel like I'm actually prepared. Nobody wants to show up and be not prepared. You were complimentary of me before, and I feel like one of the things I admired about you from the beginning is that you had a bigger vision than racing. You kind of the same way I wanted to, you executed it on a much quicker time frame than most other people in the sport where you thought OCR is not my end game. It is the door that will open my end game. Yep. And you had your notoriety, you had your name out there, and you leveraged that at a pretty good time to be able to open a gym in DC, which is not an easy thing, and then expand to a second one. So I I look at you as 
not someone who left racing, but someone who is a success story from OCR because it led you to your career, to your passion, and you grabbed it before you before it left. You didn't try to milk your career at the expense of your real career, which I think a lot of people do is they chase the glory of racing too long yeah. and their yes. window of opportunity passes. Or they give up too much. Like I, I've said from the beginning, like I always told people it's not the end game. Like you need to leverage this to to build your career. If, if you have the ability to make money off of this sport, it's more than just finishing on the podium. So yep. for me, that meant finding broadcast opportunities. Um, and it, they just continue to, that to happen, I think, in part because, you know, it's about being professional. But part of it is just like, do a good job, you know, do it the right way, which means like, don't be insulting people, um, you know. I think uh, a lot of it was like, you know, conducting yourself with class, which is like, um, you know, it's like, I love Hunter a lot, but he and I used to clash a little bit when he was younger. Like we were like really good friends. And then also like we'd clash because he's a big smack talker. And I was like a huge believer that like, you should be like lifting up your competition and commending them. Cause like they're like, in, if you're beating people who are sucky, you're not really accomplishing anything. If they, you know, like, congratulations, everybody sucks. Like, okay, well, but, you know, it's a much bigger deal to be like, I just beat a bunch of really talented, amazing people. Um, and so I, I, you know, I always thought that, especially with a young sport, like we wanted to, you know, pick it up and grow it and really like uplift each other. And I think that was a really um, big thing. And then, um, you know, I got into coaching, like I really liked changing people's lives and, and like the impact that you have on people. It's, it's a very like special thing to see them either lose a ton of weight or PR race or whatever. And like, it, it just kind of makes you realize that there's a lot more racing is very like egocentric. It's about yourself. You have to put in, a, it's very selfish. You have to put in a lot of time to yourself, even at the expense of the people who love you. And um, coaching is the exact opposite. You're putting in a lot of time into someone else. So there's something really rewarding that comes. Mm -hmm. And then balancing it all eventually with, and, I, and I'm doing this right now as a coach and I have a personal training business. Bracken's a coach and a racer. Then now it sounds like you're maybe shifting into finding a balance between giving and getting a little, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's I think, all right. yeah, no, you definitely, man. Like I, I see you guys and, and Kirk, I would say it's funny because you're the, you're the guy on my dartboard right now. Oh yeah. And you specifically are the guy on my dartboard right now. That we've, I never raced. we've never raced. And I'm like, and I look at you and I go, this guy has like a lot of accolades, a lot of talent. I like your your racing style, which mm -hmm. is like you have enough speed, but you're a bit of a grinder. You, I see your workouts on Strava, and I see how you're able to drop a very aggressive tempo and hold it. Um, mm -hmm. And I look at that, and I'm like, I and I look at where you finish in a lot of races, and I'm like, I would like to race that guy. I think that would be fun. Let's do it. What are we waiting for? <laughs> you guys have a lot of similarities. You're both yeah, like, your stride is not the same, but it's similar where a lot of your stride action happens behind you and your upper body is leaned a little bit and a little rounded. Like you're both top heavy, like chest, yeah. arm area. Like, yes. yeah, it's interesting. I, I'd, I'd pay for a front row seat to watch this battle. I guess it depends on what kind of race it is. You know, if yeah. it's like, if it's. Listen, uh, listen, the person with the dartboard up in their room doesn't get to pick the venue. Oh, you want to take up the champ, you got to show up at his front door. 
That's fine. I'll go there. You live in a very flat area. I'm down for that. I'm, I'm here for the flat race. <laughs> uh-huh. When, this actually leads me into another curiosity then. Yeah. Um, what you knew were asking about DecaFit and we kind of left that conversation bracken, but what, yeah. uh, what would you be racing this year if uh, the floodgates opened? If it was like any, anything goes, I would run, I always run my local races because um, just traveling is not always easy, but I, I always bring yeah. athletes to the local ones. We brought 130 athletes to the Nats Park race last year. Bracken, you saw that. I'm like a little, wow. it's hard for me because like I'm a little like so flustered by like having like all my members that like I don't like really focus enough on my own warm up and like being primed myself for those races. But um, I'd love to do a few stadium races. I'd love to do some DecaFit events when I, I maybe if I just, even if I pre-run the course before I do the commentary, that'd be cool. Um, and then, yeah, I think I'll try High Rocks. I mean, the thing is, everything about High Rocks to me looks amazing until the absolute last thing on the menu, the 100 wall balls. And I'm like, this is no disrespect. That's stupid, but okay, but I'll do it. I mean, I'll try it. It's going to, that will probably shatter me. But like, if it was 50 wall balls, I think it would be a better number. So let's say that you, now with Kirk and I just talked that like comebacks can't happen. It can't be a one-off race. You can't come back, put all your eggs on one race because (laughs) it's not fair. Yeah. It's not fair. Like you're setting yourself up for failure, but let's say you did. Let's say you ran your local races, got sharp, got good at obstacles, got your efficiency back, got used to that awful burn of racing. And you said, all right, it's all on one race to reestablish like my place in history. If you had to race everyone currently in the sport, what race would you show up to and choose that would best suit you? Jacksonville. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. Jacksonville. Because I can throw down a tempo the whole race that I won't overrun and I won't like blow up on like one big climb or something like that and or get dropped really far. I think like a flatter course like that with hard obstacles would be my key. Um, that would give me that 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 race was really tight. Personally, Jacksonville as a sprint would probably be my best bet as a super still probably decent. The other race I look at and I'm like, ooh, you know, it would be probably pretty good for me. Um, Seattle. Mm-hmm. I agree. Seattle Seattle runs faster than Jacksonville did this year. Jacksonville did not run like a fast course. I don't know how much if you went on it, but it wasn't right. But it ran a lot slower than it appeared. I, you know what, the thing is, this year's Jacksonville did not have a lot of places to open up. Last year's Jacksonville was like the opposite. It was like you could open up everywhere. Uh, Mm -hmm. So yeah, and and although I am a huge proponent of more sprints in the national series, like. Actually, I'm a huge proponent of more value on sprints and supers as a whole. I think the Beast is an incredibly overrated race, especially as a spectator sport, but extremely overrated as a championship event. I think it's the wrong event every year for the championship. The championship should be the race with the largest number of people have a chance to win that race, meaning that the guys who are the specialists in the Beast and the guys that are the specialists in the, in the sprint come together on a middle ground somewhere, and you don't know what the hell is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, like where, and where obstacles actually play a role. Like, yes, it can be argued that Jonathan Albin didn't win the championship in Tahoe because he missed the spear, or Ryan Wood. But um, usually the gap in a world championship beast is so large that you can even – miss a spear or and still potentially win that race in a in a championship sprint or a championship super 
there's 100% zero chance of it. I actually think yeah. John Alvin lost the race on the double sandbag carry, by the way. That thing destroyed him this year, didn't it? Bracken, yeah. you, had a, you were looking at that firsthand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it did. But even that, uh, I don't want to like beat a dead horse, but that strikes me as a task, not an obstacle. You know, he just ran up into something that physically it took way too long, way too much strength. But um, like that, that monkey in the middle this year, that long twister, like those, that didn't matter at all. And it was so nasty and everyone was so cold, but it didn't matter. It didn't change anything in the race outside of like maybe some change between like eighth and 12th or whatever, you know, like, but if people had to hit that in a 30 minute race, that obstacle is a game changer. That's exactly what I was going to say. If your heart rate is 185, when you get to that versus 135, it's a totally different experience. That's what a lot of, I think a lot of people that haven't got their race acumen down yet uh, don't understand sometimes when some of the pros mess up a little bit on an obstacle, but it's because of the rev, the rev limiters already been surpassed. And then yes. trying to do something when when you're yeah when you're oxygen deprived is a whole different deal. I um I had an experience of that um, in October. I went and ran the Ocean City Sprint. It's like uh like one of the city sprint ones. And um I went out of, like out of the gates like hot and just was running away with the race. And then you hit a section where it's 15 ram burpees, which is hard. 15 box jumps water jug carries through the sand and then spear throw and all of that in like a three minute span and then i uh missed the spear it's like windy missed the spear did my 15 extra burpees in the sand because it's on a beach and then run down the, the sand till you come out and then now i'm in like third place so i'm like i'm full pedal to the metal from a mile and a half from the finish line or a mile from the finish line and i catch second place and I go all the way to the finish line, ready to win, ready to take second at least. And um, and I get like I'm completely redlined. And when I get to the uh, rings, multi rig, just rings. I had to do like the super slow one ring, rock back, reach forward, catch the ring, rock back. And this guy goes straight past me. And I tried to switch my grips in the middle and go to like really quick hand over hand. And ended up uh, just getting stuck and having to like recreate my own momentum and lost a race. And it's like that only happens because you're so you're like your race brain is just like it's not there because you're toast. Yeah, I tell people like if you want to really feel that that race simulation obstacle situation, go run like an all out mile and then finish that into an immediate dead hang and see how that feels. Yeah, it's not going to go well. You're going to go potentially minutes shorter than you you could if you were not redlined. This is kind yeah. of like this is kind of like when Bracken Bracken was one of the brains behind the uh, Spartan Combine that we put together. So, um, like, I got to kind of be the face for it because Bracken last minute couldn't fly out. Was that because your daughter broke her leg? Is that what happened? I think that was it. Yeah, she shattered her leg. Yeah. That was rough. And we had spent a week and a half planning all the events for this combine in Laughlin, Nevada. And then, um, and then Bracken, like the night before, all of a sudden couldn't go. And we had to change a bunch of events on the fly because they didn't lay out the, the festival area the way they promised us that they would. But we wanted to basically have, you know, we invited all these athletes. We said, come to the Spartan Combine. It's this really awesome opportunity to get discovered, basically. So it was like the next tier down of Spartan athletes that weren't already 
on the pro team or whatever. And, um, and we wanted to put them through simulations of basically each race distance. And obviously you can't have them run a sprint, a super, a beast, like all in one day, but we managed to do a, we basically started with like shorter, twitchier events and with obstacles interspersed in that, um, things like tire flips or, um, you know, and burpees and, and spear throws and stuff like that. And then it gradually got into this thing where the events became longer and more grueling. And we did a, we did a, I think it was our sprint course simulation that had them doing two laps where each lap was probably like a half mile, but you're they're they're racing in a group of 30 people. So they're racing hard and they're going over walls and they're doing uh, after an up, they're doing an uphill run into a multi-rig and stuff like that. And it, um, it destroyed people, but it gave them a, it gave us a really obvious feel of like the hierarchy of where people stood. And I know there were some people that did not compete in it that were like very critical of it, but the cream rose to the top without question in this event. So it is cool to kind of see the different ways you can simulate your race fitness. Cause it isn't just about like, how fast can I run? It's how fast can I run and complete this stuff efficiently. And if you look at like a Hobie call, who was the first true master of this sport, what made him so great was that, yes, he was a phenomenal runner, but there were plenty of races where he was not the fastest runner in the field. Someone would show up who was a better runner than him. But Hobie had this ability to get in and out of an obstacle fluidly without using any excess energy. And he wouldn't feel, he would, land on the ground mid-stride, continue moving so gracefully, and never look like he actually used energy. He'd look, in fact, recovered by the time he came off every obstacle. And that's a special gift that very few people have. I would say Orion Atkins has that. Yeah, the greats find that way to, to master that technique. So speaking of Hobie, you kind of bring me to, I wanted to ask you about some of your favorite race memories because you and I uh, raced a lot over a couple of years together. We're at the same venues a lot. And part of that was because we were part of that first pro team and they brought us to, you know, you, we had a lot of flights we could use those first couple of years. <laughs> yeah, we, we did. Everywhere. Like we milked that budget. But um, whenever I think about you, I always flash back to the Miami superhero scramble. Yes. And um, that, it, go on. Go on. I was going to say that was a, that was a tipping point in my career, that race. But you and I um, both kind of had the same occurrence happen in that we were caught unprepared for a big moment. Um, that ended up being the race where Hunter beat Hobie for the first time Hobie had ever been beaten, correct? Well, you know, it's, yes, that is correct. And, and I, I want to point out two things. One, that was not the Miami superhero scramble. That was Claremont. Oh yeah. That is the first thing. One, um, and and for those who don't know, who think that we are all rivals and whatnot, um, I booked Hunter McIntyre's flights for him down to that race because um Hunter wasn't really capable of doing that for himself back then. Um <laughs> uh, and he ran on our team. So it was Bracken and Hunter and I and who was our fourth? Miguel was our fourth. Oh, Miguel, yeah. Miguel Guillermo. Uh, Medina, and um, it was because because we're talking about team racing back then too. So this is Claremont, Florida, and you could have teams of four. Your top three scored the the start of team racing, and the team would get two thousand dollars whoever won. And then of and course individuals got money too. Individuals got money. 
And at this time, this is 2014, 2013, 2013. Uh, at this time, Hobie Call has never lost a race outside of a championship beast. He, he has won in Killington his first yeah. year. Which was, yes. And it's a Killington beast um, that he lost to Marco Bedard. Um, and then outside of Cabs that. cramped in the water on the lake swim. Yes, which has happened to me twice. So I feel his pain. Um, and he, so, so he's basically a monster in the sport. And he's the guy that it's on everybody's dark board. Everybody wants to be like, I took down Hobie Call. Well, this particular course, uh, let me backtrack. We all flew in together. We all stayed in a motel, no, in a days in that was $30 a night that five of us crammed into because it was you, me, Hunter, Miguel, and my friend Greg who slept on the floor and we all shared beds and we ate at Golden Corral the night before. And it yes, was we did. Place. It was the smelliest room like in the history of rooms. I, I shit you not. But uh, we show up on race morning. We're all primed. The other big teams to worry about, uh, Hobie is running. I can't remember if he was on Cody's team or not. Cody Moat was on with, was teamed with Alex Nicholas, a few other people, mm -hmm. uh, Eddie Matzak, a few other guys. And um, when the race goes off, we quickly realize there are three swims in this race. Not one, not two, but three swims. And these were not the type of swim you find now where – if you have to swim, it's a minute long, and most of the time you're in a life vest and you're in waist deep water. We had a total. Do you remember how much swim there was total on course? I think it was like 500 meters. We, no, we had seven tenths of a mile that we swam total over three swims on course. It's like 20 minutes of swimming. It was, at least. A lot of swimming. It was and your shoes just fill up and float on top of the water. Mm -hmm. Right shoes. That's what mine did. They floated. Um, some people's shoes sink and. There were there was a rope that you were supposedly not supposed to use, and there were no life jackets, and you swim. And there was one kayak lifeguard per swim, and you like one swim we swam a full three hundred meters without exiting the water, and there was one kayak for the three hundred meter swim of all the racers. It was super sketchy. So the last swim was very short. It was like in, it was in and out quick. It was probably like 40 meters or so. But the first two swims were really long. I remember that they're super, super long. And we, you come out of the water and you just start hammering again. And I remember looking back and seeing Hobie call after the first swim and he's coming out of the water and he's like choking and like gagging. And he just, could not swim well at the time and neither could Cody. And neither of them have ever lost a race at this point. Neither of them. Yes. Only to each other. And, um, and Cody, actually, this is the first time that his thyroid issues ever flared up because I came by him at the, at the 5k mark in this race and I passed him running, which I'd never done before. And I said, Cody, what's wrong? And he goes, I don't know. I just don't have it. And later we learned that he was having thyroid issues that plagued him for years. Um, and, but we come out of the water, Hunter is in front. Bracken and I are about, I don't know, 50 yards behind him at this time. And we look back and Hobie is 50 yards behind us and fading. And we, and we, we turn to each other and we're like, this is that day. Mm -hmm. like, we are going to beat Hobie right now. And we put the jets on. I mean, we, I ran, I, I feel like I was running the best race of my entire life. Uh, in part, because when I come out of a swim, I feel good. Um, and some people don't feel good when they come out of the swim. I feel amazing. And we're, and the weather was perfect and we're just flying on this flat. 
it's like sand with like a little bit of grass growing on top and it's hard packed and we're just, we're moving. We come out of the second swim, the gap is now 200 meters to Hobie call and he's dying. And we're like, this is it, we got him. Hunter's uh, 40 seconds up on us at this point, maybe 30 seconds up on us. It's not that far to Hunter either. And, and Bracken turns to me and he goes, David, we're about to do something real special today. And then we ground a corner. We are literally a quarter mile from the finish line. Where's the marker? Where, 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 which way do we go? We don't know. We stand there. We're running around, looking in circles. Like, where is the marker? And we mm. stand there literally until Hobie gets to us. And he goes, what's going on? And we go, we don't know where to go. And he's like, oh, man. And we all stand there for another 10 seconds. And we're looking around. And then we're like, let's just go this way. And we turn, and it's the right way. There's a marker like around the bend and we come into the final series of obstacles all side by side. We're now a hundred meters from the finish and there's a, um, a balance beam about this wide. I stop and start walking slow. Bracken slows down a bit. Hobie just sprints across it, just runs across it like nothing. Go up the, they had a ramp, right? It was like a, something like a warped wall and then a water slide down and then, the, and then uh, through the barbed wire and the race was over. Um, that was it. That was it. Hobie beat you by like four seconds. And Hunter, it was like it was like uh, he had just stepped out of a ring after a heavyweight title match. He was just swarmed by crowds and like Matt Davis and everyone was interviewing him and taking pictures. And he was just like his star ascended that day. And Dave and I were both sitting there with our heads in our hands, like, mm. "Oh man, that was us. That was us." This was a historic oh. day in the sport. Like the day Matt B. Davis just posted about it. Like this was a couple of days ago. He's like. This is the day like seven years ago that uh, Hunter McIntyre beat Hobie Call for the first time. And it's like, we all, we beat him. Like he was broken, it was done. And, and Bracken and I were gonna be dueling for second. And then we, that was taken from us. And we were, it was devastating, man. I'm telling you, that was probably, that was one of the roughest heartbreaks that I've had in this sport. And I've had many, I've had many heartbreaks in this sport. But you know what my takeaway was? About a thousand meters out, I had to stop pushing because I was coming up short on fitness. No, we, don't tell me that. We had to run hard out of the water for so long and I started getting cramps from the swimming on my side. And I knew like, you ever get it in the race? You're like, hey, if it goes wrong, it's this point right here. I thought mm -hmm. if I get run down, it's because I eased off. And it, it wasn't that we slowed, it's that we stopped accelerating. And when he caught us, I just couldn't help but think afterwards, like if I had an extra 15 seconds or 10 seconds gap, maybe we find that turn earlier. And he doesn't now pass us as we turn. He's still 20 meters down. And so I just he, like- Is he definitely- I he thought, could not have, if we had not stopped, he could not have caught us. That's yeah. the thing. He could not have caught us. It was impossible. But at the same time, like we would have beat him because he couldn't swim. Not, not because of any other reason. But. That's the, the, the truth of the matter is that he and Cody finished like ninth that day. Like, like he, Hobie drowned basically in that race and still got second place. Like yeah. it, it's, it's worth noting. It's, it's, he's amazing. Um, but my takeaway was you have to come correct when it's your moment to seize the like the throne like that was the day and hunter grabbed it and we faltered with it like yeah the course wasn't perfectly marked but like instead of stomping on his throat we gave him just at least hope and and it just haunted me for years like that was our day yeah listen i, I still think about that race i literally still think about race i think about a lot of races 
But you put the fear of God into me in that race. First of all, a 200, they, prior to the race starting, they were like, there's a lot of water moccasins and copperheads or whatever mm, on course and gators everywhere. So just be vigilant. Like 200 meters into the race, everyone starts jumping and there's this giant snake in the middle of the path that's just striking left and right. And, everyone's just like, <laughs> and the thing hit the side of my foot with its head. And I'm like, because there's no, you saw it like I as remember you that. And then I'm running the next like 100 meters, 200 meters, 300 meters. Like, did its fang get me? Did it get me? And then like my leg starts tingling because my mind's going crazy. I'm like, is that the venom? Like, do I need to turn in now? And eventually it goes away. But we get to a swim, a long swim. And as I'm stroking through the water, I put my hand out and I hit something hard and knobbly in front of me. Was it my shoe? Well, I thought it was a gator. And I had, I just froze for a second. Like, do I open my eyes and watch myself die? Or do I just close my eyes and hope it goes away? And after like another second, I open it up. Yeah, it was Megita's ex-talent lugs in front of me. But I had like, <laughs> in that second, my life flashed before my eyes. I thought, I'm we're 50 meters from shore. And I just hit a gator. I slapped it with my hand. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm about to die. And, you know, superhero scramble, in the end, things did not go well. They ended up not paying people out for the Miami race, which was their their world championship at the end of that year. And uh, they ended up owing me a few thousand bucks, you a few thousand, Hobie a few thousand bucks. And that was sucky. Um, but the races themselves were always great. Like I, I have memories of that Carolina race that you and I ran together side by side the whole race. Um, another one where, where Bracken broke my heart, where uh, we ran a, a team race, you, me, Alec Blennis was our third. And I had, I had the flu all week and I was, uh, I was on a exclusive, the only thing I could keep that I didn't um, honestly that I, I that kept me from crapping myself was uh, was Pedialyte, and so the morning of the race I hadn't eaten solid food for like three days, and I was like, I don't know if I got this, guys. And lo and behold, I run like one of the best days of my life. Um, and Bracken and I are side by side in this nine and a half mile race with a half mile to go. And then, as usual, Bracken with his uh, he has the same line he's used to me twice in races in this scenario. <laughs> Which is sorry, David, <laughs> and, then, and then just drops me. As you're about to pass him, you apologize. Like, sorry, I know I'm going to crush you right now. It's preceded <laughs> by another line, which is, "Are we running this in together, or are we going to race?" What did I say to you? I don't remember what you said, but I know my <laughs> next line was an apology. <laughs> no, I I said I said I I want to race it is the thing. So. Um, and that's the thing, Bracken, if I had asked him to run in with me, he would have done it. He would have done it and we would have split the money, but he, but it, but the moment that I said, nah, it's a race. He's like, all right, see you later. Just my personal curiosity. And I like to kind of ask everybody this, but since we're reminiscing about times before I even knew Spartan existed, um, what, what race do you look back on the most fondly and most proud of your effort, David? Like which one? jumps out to you be like yeah that is that is the epitome of my racing up to this point have we already talked about it or is it something we haven't no i'd say there's a couple there's a couple that really that really jumped to me um the one i always i tell the story is um i've got a few heartbreaks and i don't know if i want to get into those but i one that was good for me was vernon new jersey um it was a super not a beast they had downgraded it to a, a, a super but it was still like 10 miles and uh you know, back in the days, this the super races where it was very loosely a super. It was like ten and a half miles. It was a pretty long race in a mountain mm-hmm. course, and I was racing a few people: uh, Jun Young Pak, Legend, um, mm-hmm. Alec Blennis, 
Elliott was a pretty good gamer back in the day too. You never knew what he was going to bring and a few other guys. And, uh, I remember the, the, oh, the race opens with a mile, like straight up the mountain and running. Okay. Running strong. And then about five miles into the race, my left hamstring cramped out of nowhere. And I just watched Alec Blennis just went by me and just starts running away. And I'm like, this guy shouldn't freaking beat me. It's ridiculous. He's a good runner, good racer. But I had like an eight game, eight race win streak against him. And uh, I just watched him disappear. I had to walk. I was like, I'm walking. I'm broken. My, my hamstring is done. And, um, and then on the next downhill, I just bombed it and caught back up to him, caught him again, do another climb all the way to the top of the mountain. He drops me again, another downhill, caught him again. And this goes back and forth for the rest of the race. And then the race ends with from top to bottom downhill, turn around, go 300 meters up the mountain and then back down to the finish. And I caught him on the last downhill. I averaged like 4.30 per mile on the downhills of this race. It was crazy. And, um, and then I beat him on the last uphill, even though he had beaten me on the previous like four climbs. He had crushed me on the previous four climbs. But I beat him on the last uphill and won the race. And I just remember like feeling like this is – that was everything I had. My hamstring was done. I couldn't run for like two weeks. But that was, for me, a very, very satisfying win. Mm. Not to move on from you, but I'm actually Bracken. We've never had this conversation either. And I, maybe the people are curious. I'm curious. What is your proudest race moment to date? What, which one is it for you? Oh, I don't know. Uh, the proudest I've, I, I guess if it was just pure proud, like the most pride I've ever felt crossing a finish line was uh, the 2012 World Championship Beast and Ultra, just because okay. I shouldn't have finished those races. And I just, that that was like, that was a mind over body day. I don't know. I haven't I haven't had one I'm super proud of since probably City Field when we all raced that one year. Kent, Hunter, Isaiah, all of us, and Kempson and I came down to that 100-meter sprint at the end. Do you know what race? When we ran the Minnesota Mountain Series sprint, you were finally coming back to it. And I'll be honest, I ended up second behind Woodsy by only three seconds in that race, which is the Ooh. closest I've cut. Yeah, well, there's a caveat to this. Uh, you and Woodsy for two and a half miles of that three and a half mile race ran away with it. You and you and Woodsy ran together. And I think that day you may have beat Woods. Uh, Woodsy and Bracken, uh, went the wrong way on the bucket carry. They probably had 20 seconds on me, 20, 30 seconds. I mean, you guys had a great race, which just opened the door. Once you guys got back on track, that's the proudest I've seen. I've been of you racing. Cause I thought that was your day. That is a devastating thing, huh? And that's, and that's the year Woodsy won. That's the year Woodsy won the national series. That was Woodsy as good as we've seen him. And Bracken, you ran toe to toe with him for thirty minutes of that race. Yeah, I was pretty mentally locked in and physically getting back on track. But that was a strange one. We came into a bucket carry about a mile from the finish, and the row of buckets led in. So we ran all the way to the end, took the last bucket, and ran up. And that turned to be the wrong way. You were supposed to then backtrack and go out. So we made it about a third of the way into the carry and some guy starts yelling, we're going the wrong way. And we just, I was like probably 20 yards behind woods. And I yelled to him, just send everyone this way. If we all go the same direction, it doesn't matter. So we keep going True. another 10 and another guy comes up and says, you have to go, go back. So now Terrible. we turn around Terrible. and now I'm 20 yards ahead of woods. And I'm like, well, shoot, I think when we get to the bottom, I'm going to wait for him. Mm -hmm. Cause I didn't, 
this is an ill-gotten lead. So we get, I hear the guy yelling again. I can't hear what he's saying, but I'm like, forget it, man. I'm just going to get to the bottom, regroup with Woods, and we'll re-race. As we're getting down, Kirk comes in and Mike, and they grab theirs, and now they have like a 30-yard lead on me. And as I get to the bottom, I look. What the guy had been yelling is he was giving us permission to just cut across to the other side because it was just an over loop. Woods cut across. I didn't hear it, so I returned to the bottom. So now I'm however far behind him. Yeah, so I – yeah. I cracked the whip to try to catch back up to them, and I I imploded. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that could have been one of those proud days. But, I mean, that's obstacle racing in a nutshell. Like, if you're not if you're not making every correct decision, like, it's real easy to go off course. or And then you just you don't have it. I was a king of getting lost, and you know that. I mean, this is, yeah. this is what I used to do. I mean, I led 30 racers off course in the Las Vegas race, that, the one that has the, the Cody Hunter uh, photo finish for second place. I ended up seventh in that race, but I but I had to rerun a ton of that race to catch up. Um, the Miami uh, the race. Fire race. What? The fire race. The fire race. Was that the you one where they had fires? Yes. You didn't run in that race, did you? No. You? Yeah. I won this race in Miami, Spartan Super. That would have been my first victory. Crossed the finish line, got the gladiator salute, everything. Um, and it turns out, that in the middle of the race, I remember so distinctly, I was like, why is there a fire pit here? And I jumped over the fire, like a little fire, small burning embers, nothing, nothing big. And then followed my tape and ran the race. A, a fire had started in the woods. I don't know how. And it had burned a bunch of marking tape and it ended up, I was in the lead, but it ended up, I followed, I followed a, a course that cut out uh, three quarters of a mile of the race. And it included uh, either a drag or a carry. So they knew that I had not been there. And so they DQ'd me. They DQ'd Elliot, who got second. And then we conferred with uh, Mike um, Morris. Yeah, Mike Morris. And, and you know what's funny? Um, this is back in the day when Spartan Point Series was a thing. The Point Series was big. And they were going to award points to like the guys who really would have been like 15th place. They were going to get like first place points. And, um, and they ended up, we all kind of put our two cents in and they ended up throwing out the race entirely. Didn't count for the point series because of that. Um, so they invite us all back to go run the second day. And the cash prize is still up for grabs because of the first day's debacle. And um, I'm in first place again. And I uh, somewhere take a wrong turn. Again, <laughs> and, damn it, uh, David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's my home course. My parents had come out the day before, but they didn't want to come out a second day, but because they were mad about what happened the first day, and um, all my friends that I went to school with had come out for that because Miami's where I went to grad school, and they're all waiting at the finish line, and I went the wrong way, and then I'm running, and a volunteer tells me I'm going the wrong way, and I start screaming, and then I'm like, I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm like yelling, two days in a row. And then all of a sudden I hear footsteps behind me, like thump, 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 like boots. And and I'm still yelling. And they're like, and someone's like, what's going on? And I was like still yelling. And I said, I'm this is outrageous. I'm gonna write a letter. And the guy goes, Well, you can write a letter, but it's gonna go to me. And it was Mike Morris <laughs> running behind me. So he runs me back onto the course and I finish the race fourth, furious, winner goes to, and Elliot again also got lost, who stayed with me down there. And uh, I think Pac also got lost amongst other people. Um, the 
winner is do you remember Joey Petrolia? Mm-hmm. Bracken knows him. Oh yeah, he's a nice guy. Shouldn't be winning this uh, elite Spartan race, but he's a great guy. Um, good racer. And so yeah, I mean, I have a lot of heartbreaks like this where it's like the superhero the wrong turn there, the wrong turn these races. I, I'm the king of losing races. I shouldn't lose. If you race enough. Uh, and if you're in the lead, especially, I've had two wrong turns in my days. Um, one at Palmerton, my first year doing the national series, mm. I decided to go a quarter mile down a double black diamond ski run only to realize I needed to go back up that fucking double black diamond ski run to get back on course. Do you want to know what a power hike of shame is like trying to climb <laughs> 400 feet of vert at Palmerton when you're off course? That was a low point. I believe we commentated that race. Oh, it was the one chance I would have cracked the top 10. It would have been my first big, big race. I was proud of. I get it. That happened. Which year was um, that? 2016? 2017? 2017. Yeah, 2017. Yeah, we um, that was a, yeah. a Bracken-Megida special. That was uh, my first one I ever commentated. You, were you guys really were my good. favorite duo. You guys were my favorite uh, favorite commentating duo watching those back. Um, David, as we were at an hour 47, as we, as we slowly work on wrap, wrapping this thing up. We have to. Um, yeah, I mean, we could chat all day. I'm on vacation. Actually, the, the lake is calling me. My girlfriend, poor, I don't know what she's been doing. Is She's waiting to go out on the boat. I know, it's oh, a rough right. life today. Um, actually, in fact, she literally, we caught some fish yesterday. I'm not joking you. I taught her how to clean fish. And while we were recording this podcast, she went and cleaned walleye and perch on her own. Wow. Cleans fish. Like, what What else can I ask? What a lady, man. Um, you, you got a I'm good one. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Um, but. I just want to know, uh, personal curiosity again of mine, are you going to hop into an actual series ever again? Like a whole are you gonna, <laughs> that I want you to commit to something. You seem to be a guy who likes to sporadically, whatever excites you, you kind of jump into and then decide on the next thing and jump into. I could yes. be wrong there. Are you going to give us a whole series, man? I mean, don't you think, uh, don't you think you want to know? A little bit. A little bit, man. Does I would interest you. I was the first person in this sport to retire. And then unretire, and then re-retire, and and um, you're a Brett Favre. I should have just stayed retired, man. Um, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, like, Mark's got me doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, he had me do that ultra virus twelve hour race recently, yeah, which you did well. Yeah, I did. did pretty, I did pretty good. I I could have gone further, but I didn't want to walk any of it. I wanted my pace to be really high. So mm-hmm. I, I sat still instead of walking and that cost me like five places. Um, but it was, um, that was really fun. I don't know. Like part of me is like, man, maybe I need to start like dabbling in ultras. Part of me is like, wow, that destroyed your body for like a month afterwards. So maybe, maybe don't do that. Um, you also ran all week the next week. I watched and you went out for your runs like every day for the whole week. So weird that his back started hurting. So I can't weird. imagine why. I ran a mile and a half the next day, mile and a half. And I was like, and it was like, I, to call it a run is a very generous term for what I did. I ran, I think I was like 1230 on the first mile and like 1130 on the second mile or the second half mile. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did five miles the day after that, where it was like, first mile was like 11 minutes, then 10, then nine, then eight, then like 640. Like I felt better. And I ran 45 miles that week. I ended up. By Can you imagine week. that? You should have taken 10 full days off of no running for sure at minimum. How many miles did you hit in those 12 hours? I did 70 miles, but it was like in 11 hours and like 20 minutes. So I just didn't have time to do another loop. Um, I just, I did not calculate like my pit time correctly. Like it was my first go of things. 
I originally was just like, I'll just do 50 miles and call it a day. And then like halfway through the race, I was like, I can do more. And uh, shit. Part of the problem was that I went out with Mark and tried to pace him to win. And so I ran the first 32 miles side by side with him. And he's a ultra machine. I mean, we ran 715s for the first 32 miles. And that was a big mistake on a day you're trying to do 70 or 75 miles. Um, and um, and then I was running a lot of 830s and 9s at the end of the day. And the, the IT bands were locking up. Um, but that got me into like thinking like, you know, maybe I should do some of this ultra stuff. Like who knows? Um, I don't want to miss the national. I, I don't want to not broadcast the national series. That's I think the biggest problem for me. So then it's like, what do you do? Do you do the stadium series? Could those races hurt like hell in a great way, but they hurt like hell and they're unpredictable. Like in terms of who will finish where, um, but I, I think I have some unfinished business in stadiums, I think is probably one, but it's not what I'm training for right now. That's the problem. Like, my aerobic base is is very good right now, but what I need there is to be able to run a much higher heart rate and much more intense, you know, and and have the strength. So mm-hmm. it's like, what what do I focus on? Maybe I need your advice, guys. Well, it's hard to say because I mean, if Fed National Series commentating is your baby, um, you can't you can't tell someone to leave what excites them the most because that's silly. You do what excites you. And if commentating excites you, then that's what it is. But I don't know. I always feel like there's a little more purpose to my training and my season when I have an overarching goal, which is a series. It just brings everything full circle and it centers me. So for me, that keeps my fire lit knowing I'm working towards a bigger picture. Um, that's just me. But what, that's what my do you New do? York, that's my New York marathon this year, man. That's my A race. New York then marathon. Then you got, you got what you need. That's my A race. The uh, the JFK 50 is going to be like the, you know, my fitness will be there. It either is there and my body's ready or it's not at that point. And then, um, you know, it's like, do I want to pop some races before then? Like, if you're like, hey, do you want to run Palmerton? My answer is hell no. Like, I've raced Palmerton a bunch of times. I raced really well there once. I've exploded on the side of that mountain before. I've done it for funsies with Bracken where he buried me once. Remember that time after the broadcast? <laughs> I do. <yeah. laughs> we started at noon. It was ninety degrees outside. Mm-hmm. We got destroyed. Um, and yeah, man, like maybe I would do some national series races, or maybe I would go after Decafit. I think Decafit's one that I could probably run as good as anybody. Mm-hmm. All right, it's good to know. We'll see what yeah. happens. I guess. I don't we? know. I think yeah. you should get your feet wet by doing day two of all your broadcast races. That's and a good idea. Be the day two champ to to knock the rust off and then target something. That, you know, and it's funny because I find it a little inappropriate to be that guy who shows Not anymore. up on day two. No, not with your situation. Mm-mm. And especially, oh, one, it's not anymore. Day two, people just race day two. If you put money on the line, it's not inappropriate anymore. And also, your day one is tiring. It's not the same as racing, but your day one does not put you fresh for day two. It's a 10-hour day, and you're in the elements all day long, not eating and drinking as you would normally do. So, no, nah, I don't think you have anything to worry about. I would also yeah. argue that um, running the course and knowing it is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I do, uh, it depends on how this year goes because um, I might also have to rabbit in order to broadcast. So that, that uh, does mix things up. Like I rabbited West Virginia last year and ran with Faye and Rebecca Hammond the whole time. And um, they both kind of finished like in the top 10 overall ish area so i was working pretty pretty hard that day like i did i did not feel good the next day when i ran Mm -hmm. 
The only Spartan race I've never finished, by the way, the next day. <laughs> what else you got, Bracken? What do you want to what do you want to toss Megiddo's way here as we close up? I, I think this is his time to pimp his gym. This guy has yeah. transitioned well into that business. Give us a little bit about that. Tell us what it's about, how people can find it, all that good stuff. Yeah, man. Um, Elevate Interval Fitness. Um, you can go to train at elevate.com. So first of all, just know that like our primary is that we have two boutique studios here in DC. Um, classes are at the, the Northwest location. The classes are 24 people. They're 20 at my Southwest location. And um, the classes, we have a bunch of different class formats. So we have a traditional classic hit class, which is going to be a combination of like running, rowing, air bike for your cardio conditioning, dumbbells, kettlebell, TRX, sandbags, bodyweight training, mini bands, everything a personal trainer might throw at you in a group setting um, for like, for like hit intervals, circuits, things like that. Um, partner workouts, the mix. Um, and I, t I always say it's kind of like a stadium race bottled into a class, which is cool. Um, and, and we have an, in, we have a all strength class, which is going to be like our twist on German volume training, um, all weights, dumbbell, kettlebell, mostly, um, a lot of supersets, things like that. Really good training for just building good strength for runners, but good strength for anyone. Um, and then we have an all endurance class and that's my favorite class. Um, you'll do 20 ish minutes of aerobic, uh, threshold work. And then it kind of feels like a race. You go from that into like a lot of hills and lactic threshold and stuff like that, where your legs start to just kind of get real heavy. And then we end with speed and power output towards the end of the workout. So, um, I typically will do about seven to seven and a half miles of volume in that class. Cause there's usually some strength and some stuff worked into it too. So that's a really good, uh, most average people will run like five, five and a half miles in that class. It's a good, it's an awesome class. Um, and then uh, we've got yoga, yin yoga, vinyasa yoga, all kinds of stuff. So it's a big mix of stuff at the studio. And then right now we're doing our Elevate at home workouts. So we got on-demand workouts, uh, hit workouts in your inbox every day, yoga workouts twice a week, dumbbell and kettlebell workouts that we send to you as well as bonus material and live classes. And DC is reopening on the 29th for outdoor workouts of 10 people or fewer. So we'll be doing those starting Friday, outdoor workouts in the park. We're starting to slowly get back to normal. Good man. Yeah, I'm pumped. Are you the founder? You're the you're the, solely the founder of this or did you go into this with somebody? I have partners. Um, partners. This, is, this is my baby. I'm the only one of the partners operating. Um, so uh, they, they, they sit on their... They sit in their castles and do their thing, yeah. and uh, and I'm out here grinding every day, building a community and uh, changing people's lives and and having fun. Good for you, man. And if people did want to uh, check check you out and maybe use your services, they could just go to the website and be directed. Even if they don't live in the DC area, they'd find best it all right there. Best thing would be www.trainatelevate.com or go to our Instagram at train at elevate. You can message them, and they'll my social media girl will get you connected with whoever you need and. We'll get you going from there. Change your life. It's uh, you know, we're sending a ton of people to races locally. So, um, if you want a community where people are training hard and are having fun and are so and like that's their social life too, that's a great way to dive into Spartan Race and be with people who love to do it. We always have fifty or a hundred people at at the local races. Awesome. I like it. You're doing good things with that platform you've been given. Yeah, got to leverage it more. Time to leverage it more, boys. Oh man, thanks for joining us today. It's been a good conversation. Thanks. It's been fun.